Welcome to Insights, practical startup advice from founders, leaders, and VCs in an easy-to-consume format. This podcast is created by Angular Ventures, a full-stack pre-A VC firm that backs early-stage enterprise and deep tech companies from Europe or Israel that are targeting global category leadership with an emphasis on the U.S. market from day one. These podcasts are taped virtually with a live audience. To join an upcoming session or learn more about the firm and how we operate, find us at angularventures.com. We're kicking off Angular Insights for 2023 with one of the best guests we've ever had. We're really delighted to have Jason here. We're going to have a great conversation today. We're going to be talking about all the lessons he's learned from investing in over a dozen SaaS unicorns. It was funny, when we were writing the title of all the unicorns he's invested in, we like literally ran out of space. There were so many. So we have a lot to talk about. Jason, thank you so much for making time to do this. I just want to give a quick intro to Jason. It's a pretty incredible resume, so I'll do my best to do it justice. And we'll talk a lot about some of these things in the course of the conversation. But Jason's the founding general partner of a venture capital firm called Emergence Capital, which was really the first early stage venture firm that focused itself on the enterprise or SaaS in general. Jason has been an early investor leading companies such as Gusto, Salesloft, G2, ServiceMax, which was acquired by GE, Box, which went public, Yammer, which was acquired by Microsoft, Steelbrick, which is acquired by Salesforce, Success Factors, which IPO'd, Visual Networks, which which IPO'd, DoubleClick, which IPO'd, Aquantive, which IPO'd. And the firm that he founded was an early investor in other incredible companies such as Salesforce, Zoom, and Viva. It's an absolutely mind-blowing list of companies. Currently, he serves on the boards of ASAP, BetterWorks, Drishti, Lotame, Oyster, and as a board observer at Gusto and at G2. Jason's been named to the Forbes Top 100 Venture Capitalist Midas List and has served on the board of the NVCA, which is the U.S. Venture Capital Association. He also served as the chairman of the West Coast Research Center for Harvard Business School and on the advisory board of the Rock Center for Entrepreneurship. He recently formed a nonprofit that invests, that, that focuses on issues such as climate change, educational employment opportunities for disadvantaged youth and ending mass incarceration. On top of that, he was the founding chairman of the Kaufman Fellows Program, which is how I encountered him originally. Oh, and Endeavor, which is a nonprofit serving high impact entrepreneurs around the world. I'm sure there's more I left out, but as far as I know, you don't have an Oscar or a Tony or any of those things, but it's an absolutely incredible track record as a VC. And it's a real pleasure to have you here to answer a few of our questions. The first question I wanted to start with was actually one that's close to my heart, which is when you, if you take yourself back in time to raising Emergence One, can you just tell us a little bit about what that was like? What were you telling LPs? Was that a smooth process? Was it difficult? And what contributed to the ultimate success of that fundraise? Well, first of all, Gil, it's, a, it's an absolute pleasure to be here with you and Anne. And I've been a big fan of Angular and what you guys have been up to since, I guess, 2014 now, 2015. Uh, you're almost, uh, what, eight years into the journey of starting a firm. You don't know if you're any good for at least a decade. So you got a few more years left, but the really fun stuff is in the decade after. So I hope you have 20, 30 year run like we did at Emergence. It's really interesting to go back and think about the founding of Emergence. I think part of it is a very personal story. So I got lucky getting into the venture business very early on in my career. So a couple of years out of business school, I worked for Venrock back in New York, which was the Rockefeller family venture capital arm. and the Rockefellers actually helped invent the venture industry. So I got to learn the business from folks who had essentially literally created the industry. And that the venture business has always been, I think, a little bit of an apprenticeship business. So I feel very fortunate I got to learn from the folks who had been doing it the longest. But back in kind of 1997, the internet was taking off and I was in New York and I really wanted to be out on the West Coast. And so I decided to leave Venrock and join a firm called U.S. Venture Partners. Wanted to be in the big leagues of venture capital out here in Silicon Valley. 
And it was an amazing ride. Like 97 to 2001 was like just hyper growth for the internet. And I was right in the mix of it. And then, of course, the tech bubble bust back in 2001 timeframe. And everything that I thought I was good at all of a sudden turned miserable, right? So I thought I was horrible at investing and I really wasn't having fun and the world was falling apart. And I really um, had to kind of look inward and decide, did I really love this business? Did I really want to keep doing it? Or did I want to try something different? And I came to the conclusion that I love the venture business. Early on in my career, things had gone really well with companies like DoubleClick and Aquana and Visual Networks, which had all gone public. So I, I figured I just wanted to be with a firm that I felt was very much aligned with my values, was focused in areas that I cared about and I thought I had some competency in, and played together as a team. And to be honest with you, when I looked around, I couldn't find a firm that kind of satisfied all of those criteria. So I almost decided to start a firm because I couldn't find the place that I really wanted to join. And I was very fortunate to, to know Gordon Ritter and Brian Jake was my two founding partners. So Brian had started St. Paul Venture Capital from scratch and had built it over 10 years. It was a single LP venture firm, the St. Paul insurance companies. And so when St. Paul decided to get out of the business, Brian had to find a new platform. And then Gordon, interestingly, had been a three-time company founder and uh, famously started a company with Mark Benioff called Software as a Service. And he came through our offices at USVP telling us about the future of software. And I was very compelled by both Mark and Gordon's vision of what was going to happen in the future. We ended up turning down the investment at USVP, and I was a little frustrated at the time. But that kind of led to these conversations of maybe this isn't a company, maybe this is an industry. And maybe this is something that we can build a venture firm around. And so Brian, Gordon and I started meeting on a weekly basis at the lobby of the Marriott over on Bayshore Highway in, the, in Burlingame. We were piggybacking off their Wi-Fi and talking about the dreams we had about building a, a really incredible firm, one we were very proud from a performance perspective, but most importantly, really aligned with our values of how we wanted to do things. And our ambition was to be the most important partner to these iconic companies of the future. And frankly, we had a really hard time raising our first fund. It was uh, in the depth of the, uh, the, the bust. The year we closed our fund was 2004, but we started raising late 2002, early 2003. So almost 18 months to get the fund done. And people were meeting with us, honestly, out of curiosity more than anything, because there were very few venture firms that were being started at the time. They did not understand software as a service or cloud computing. That was a new category. And frankly, we were a new team coming together. We each had individual track records, but we had never actually work together before in a significant way. So one thing we did, which I, I, I look back on as seminal events, was we decided to start investing together. And I think we created one of the very first SPVs, which was to invest in Salesforce. That was the company we felt epitomized the enterprise cloud and SaaS. They weren't raising money at the time, but we were able to scrape together a relatively modest amount of capital, put our own capital in and negotiate a secondary interest in Salesforce. And Mark was supportive of the investment because of his relationship with Gordon. And most importantly, it really gave us something very tangible to talk about when we were out talking to investors about what the future of software looked like. And gosh, that was back in 2002. I think the company's now, I think, 100 70 billion market cap and probably 30 billion in revenue. And it's crazy to think it's a long time, but uh, it's still amazing to see what an iconic company that Mark has created there. And that kind of led to, frankly, the founding of Emergence. And what we didn't know was 
how many sales forces there were out there. But we started looking, we started looking hard and we started finding companies like Success Factors in the HR space, which we were early investors in Box and, and Yammer and others. And as you know, the venture business, kind of that virtuous cycle of success starts to kick in when you have some good early wins like that. And um, I'm very proud. I'm very proud of the firm we built and our focus. And frankly, one of the hard things to do when you're starting to become successful in the venture business is to stay focused on the areas that you really are good at, right? Because it gets easier to raise capital and to um, look at new opportunities and, and kind of uh, diversify your approach. And I think maybe the thing I'm most proud of with building Emergence was we stayed true to who we were and what we wanted to build and within our core competency. And I think that really made all the difference over the long haul. So you touched a little bit about how you wanted to focus on SaaS, but I'd like to dive a little deeper. So you were the first firm to really identify yourself as a SaaS firm. And can you talk a little bit more about how you arrived at that insight? Why was USVP originally, why did they pass on it? Why were you sure it was as big as you thought? Or how were you able to convince yourself of that? It's an interesting process. When you think about starting anything, right? We advise many of our companies to really try and understand what's different about you. Why does the world need this company to exist? And I think we tried to take that same approach when we started the venture firm. And I think today, frankly, it's even more important than ever with you know, the Cambrian explosion of the number of venture firms over the last decade. So it was kind of a Venn diagram between what we saw as a relatively underserved but exciting opportunity, cloud software, an area of focus that we brought something unique to the table, an unfair advantage. And then finally, something that we felt we had a lot of passion for, right? This is a business that's a marathon. And I think picking an area that you're just personally very passionate about and wanting to learn more and more about, I think is critical to the long-term success of the business. So that Venn diagram of those three areas that kind of put us squarely into what we call the technology-enabled services at the time. Cloud computing, the term didn't exist and software service was just very nascent. But we really had a very clear idea that we wanted to be the best in the world at something. Checking all of those boxes is hard. You know, it's hard to find something that, that you think is going to be much bigger that other people aren't paying attention to. You know, that you think you have some unfair advantage relative to others because of your track record or reputation or history. And then finally, an area that's deep enough and interesting enough to you that you can continue to evolve and grow and learn. So that that's really where the thesis came around. And then, you know, within that, we probably created like a major thesis or major theme, investing theme for the firm every two or three years. And so they were in the context of cloud computing. That whole development of a thesis is a similar kind of approach. Finding areas that you think are relatively underserved that others don't really identify, being really passionate about it and wanting to learn about it. And then hopefully bringing to the table some unfair advantage or approach or view of the world that you think is differentiated enough that will attract the kinds of entrepreneurs that you want to back and give you an advantage investing in those companies and most importantly, adding value to those companies after you do invest. I'd love to switch the focus from the venture side, which obviously I'm fascinated by, to more of the technology side, where you've already sort of hinted this, it was not obvious to technologists that cloud was going to be the thing right? Like people looked at Salesforce and passed on it. The things that I passed on that went on to become great are very painful for, for me. And I think there's a lot to be learned since going back in time and thinking through this, okay, something novel shows up and there's, it's a debate. Is it going to work or not? And if we think about what's been going on with crypto or what's been going on with, you know, AR, like it's not obvious that these potentially big things are end up being as big as they are. So if we go back to the beginning of cloud and SaaS and Salesforce and Mark Benioff running around trying to raise his first few million dollars, what was the counter argument to the smart people who were looking at that and saying, no, not for me? What were they thinking? What, what, why was it contrarian? Because it's almost yes. impossible not to imagine that, that 
Yeah, it is impossible to imagine now. Um, I mean, but back then, to think about it, we were coming off of the, the internet bubble, right? The, the dot-com bust. And Salesforce was called Salesforce.com. Literally any company that had a dot-com in the name of the company was considered basically toast. We had pets.com, right? And I mean, it was, it was all these crazy businesses that did not have good fundamentals, right? And raised a ton of money, but really never became viable businesses. And I think the really, the key insight was a couple of things. One was, first of all, it was B2B, not B2C, right? And we felt fundamentally selling technology to businesses is a more fundamental long-term opportunity because you can, if you can prove that you're adding value to customers, the demand will always be there. And by adding value, I mean either generating revenue, incremental revenue, or saving money, or enhancing their productivity or competitive advantage. For us, it was a B2B focus versus B2C, which we felt was overfunded. And the second thing was the business model was quite unique and compelling. And I think people underappreciated that at the time. So it's hard to remember, but like enterprise software was sold like this in one big license, basically. And then you charged a whole bunch of services to help people implement that software. And 50% of the time, it never got up and running. People spent millions and millions of dollars buying software that never ended up working. So the, the idea that you could literally go and type in a URL and then get a software product that was up and running and ready to go was a huge thing, right? In terms of reducing the risk to customers. That was, that was the failure of imagination of the people that didn't get it. It was like, they couldn't believe when Mark said, hey, that's going to be the experience, they would say, you're naive, right? That, was that what was in their heads? Um, you know, the most sophisticated things on the, on the internet at the time, maybe were Amazon or Yahoo or whatever, like people didn't think you could develop serious software, right? Serious applications and deliver it over the web. And they poo-pooed. I remember Tom Siebel kind of poo-pooing Salesforce as he called it the whistle bat of software. And he just didn't take it seriously. And what Salesforce did was they started selling to small companies who couldn't afford Siebel. They could never dream of spending that kind of money and buying software, but they needed CRM, right? So it was this beautiful kind of model which allowed them to get into a market that had been relatively underserved. In a business model, the other thing that this recurring revenue model, I think is really interesting to think about because again, back during the time, all the risk was on the buyer of the software to get it up and running and valuable. When you move to a recurring revenue subscription model, the risk shifts to the vendor. If you don't deliver value for that end customer, they cut you off. I know it's, it sounds so obvious now, but at the time, that was just a really controversial thing. It was like, wow, we have to take the risk that the customer is getting value. And then the other thing is, so it was better for customers. It was lower friction on the front end, basically embedded value for the customer over the long term. Otherwise, they would shut you down. And here's the other aspect of it. It was better for the vendor. It was better for Salesforce. Because at the end of a quarter, when you were running an enterprise software company, you started from zero. You literally started from zero, right? Every yep. single quarter. Yep. With a recurring revenue business, you have every all the business that you sold to date, yep. right? Plus whatever expansion opportunities were in your existing customer base. So it made your life of building a sustainable business so much better. But right. you had to be able to be willing to forego all the cash up front in return right. for that long-term value. And people were not used to this business model. They were scared of dot-coms. They didn't believe that cloud software really was going to be a huge thing. And then so you had to raise all this capital to fund the customer acquisition costs of these companies and then hopefully turn into lifetime value. So there was a, it was a very hard bet and it was non-intuitive at the time. But if you actually went down to those first principles of, are you creating value for customers? 
Are you creating value for the vendors in terms of the business model? And is long-term, do the unit economics of the business make right. sense? All of those things were absolutely true. It's fascinating to hear that because I'm sensing like something potentially generalizable in what you're saying. That one of the things you described is that the uh, transfer of value to the customer because of the way SaaS operates creates a situation where if you're evaluating the business, I, I totally agree with you, there are benefits to the vendor, but it's also easy to see. I, I don't know if the benefits of the vendor, if I'm looking at this for the first time, I don't know if the benefits of the vendor are going to materialize, but the cost to the vendor are obvious to me. So if I'm an expert in business and I look at your business model, Mr. Benioff, and I say, oh, you're transferring all this value to customers, that appears risky. And I'm being smart by being worried about that. And it's almost like the contrarian part that would allow you to believe in it is judging that correctly and say, hey, that cost is worth it. And ultimately, if you're successfully transferring value to customers, that will ultimately crew back to you. That's true. There were a couple other elements of that, Gil, that's important. Um, the other thing was the idea that by lowering the cost and the friction, that you expand the market by orders of magnitude. And right. that's the other thing that people didn't fully appreciate. Like they, they viewed the CRM market as like the whatever thousand largest companies in the world. Absolutely. Right. right. So, the democratization so I, I, thing makes markets bigger and it can be a failure of imagination to not see how that works. Yeah, it's really interesting. Host investment in Salesforce. Now we look at Salesforce as this behemoth. What was the biggest risk that they faced? Is it the things you're describing? Was it other things that were harder to see when you made the investment? Like what was the well, darkest you know, moment? Early, early on, um, I remember that they had a deal that came to the table where they were being offered a million bucks if they would do it behind the firewall and customize a little bit of the software for that particular customer. And Benioff, to his credit, turned it down. And he said, basically, as soon as I go down that road, I've kind of broken the model, right? And I've become a hybrid between cloud, a real cloud company and an enterprise software company. And that one code base that basically gives them all of this operating leverage from a technical perspective where Every feature that they develop all of a sudden is available for every customer breaks, right? When you start having custom code, right? For each customer. So it was really the um, conviction and the discipline to say no to the things that didn't align with that fundamental thesis of a new type of company that he was trying to build. And I think, again, in retrospect, you look at those moments, right? Those moments of time where you have those decisions, which can really define the future of the business. And to have the clarity of thinking and the conviction and the discipline to say no to the things that don't align, I think turn out to be much, much more important than people appreciate early on. Cool. Um, I'd love to continue to work my way down the greatest hits list here. So if we move from Salesforce to ServiceMax, what was the key insight there? Was that new tech for old tech? Was that the old, was that sort of the contrarian piece of it? So there was two, two things about ServiceMax. One was, so at the time, Salesforce had started building an ecosystem of companies built on the platform. So we were obviously very early into knowledge about that platform. And this is one of the beautiful things about the venture businesses. If you invest in a great company, all sorts of second order opportunities start to appear. Um, so in both Viva and ServiceMax's case, they were two of the earliest companies that were betting on the Salesforce platform to build essentially a new kind of software company on top of the cloud, right? So that was the first insight that leveraging all of the investment that Salesforce had made over probably a decade of the infrastructure and the security and the performance and all of that really gave these companies a leg up selling into enterprise accounts that they would never have had the capabilities of selling into very early on. 
And the second thing was in ServiceMax case, it was really going after a large existing market, but with a fundamentally new platform and a way of really, um, I would say in both cases, Viva and ServiceMax, they really wanted to do was to become the most important piece of software selling into a particular vertical, in Viva's case, the life sciences industry, or in ServiceMax's case, a particular discipline within the organization, so the service organization. And their pitch was, we are going to be your most important partner in achieving your business goals, not we're selling you a new piece of technology. It was literally like, you can trust us. We understand your domain. We have built software that's specific to your domain. It's up and running and working, and we're going to continue to invest and grow and develop this more than you could ever do on your own. So if you don't buy us, basically, you're going to be at a competitive disadvantage. And I think it was a very bold statement, but uh, one that, that came true in both of those cases. I'm going to work down the list to get to Viva, but the way you frame that makes me think of another question for you, which is that when we think internally at Angular about companies, we segment them into horizontal companies, vertical companies like Viva, and sort of functional companies like ServiceMax, where, where you're selling to a persona, a, a CFO or a head of field service or something like that. Like a Quant is like a ServiceMax, right? And Crux is, right? So can you help me think through the playbook on those two, either vertical or functional? What do they have in common and where do they differ in terms of assessing those kind of businesses and helping them thrive? Well, they, they are different, but what's similar, I guess, is that they each bring a depth of knowledge about either the discipline, the function, or the domain in terms of the industry that gives them kind of a shortcut for getting to that customer value. It does get back to the original generic kind of thesis you pulled out, which is if you can actually deliver more value to your customers and build trust that you're going to continue to invest in building that value over time, and become a strategic partner to the individual or the function that you're selling to, or the industry, even more importantly, that you're selling to. I mean, you won. You just won. The, the value comes from that intimacy, that familiarity, right? You can turn that into value. And focus, right? It's that focus, that intimacy, that caring, and that passion about helping somebody in that particular domain win and win big, right? Um, and I, I think Salesforce did that, obviously, with the sales managers early on, right? That was their really core focus. And they were very clear about who they were serving and why. So Box is the whole world, right? Yammer and Box are like everyone can use those, right? Those are horizontal almost. Those are horizontal. And those, so those are a little bit different in terms of their approach to the market. I think in both of those cases and Zoom, by the way, right? Same thing. Right. So if, if you're not going deep, you need to have a product that has, I think, some elements of ease of use and ease of adoption that allow it to be almost viral in terms of its capabilities. And if you look at all of those, there's a network effect, frankly, associated with Yammer and Box and Zoom that doesn't exist in Aviva or ServiceMax or SuccessFactors or even a Salesforce. So those are two, I think, large buckets, I'd say, of, of opportunities. And you build those companies very differently. Do you say that functional is easier than vertical industry? Because in a vertical industry, you're selling to an organization, whereas in a functional, you got to make one VP happy and then you win. Nothing's easier so to do. Well. Easier. That might be, uh, okay, okay. Let, me, let me rephrase it. Is, no. is vertical industry harder than functional? Even harder because you're selling to an organization and you need the CFO and maybe even the CEO to buy into this, as opposed to functional where... Like maybe the CEO doesn't care how you're running field service. And as long as the VP field service is happy, he or she has a budget and we're good. 
Is that a safe observation or not? Not really. Well, I mean, actually, in both cases, I mean, you're not selling to the CEO from the get-go. You're selling to kind of functional heads, right? Let's say in Viva's case, they were selling to the sales force of the pharma company, right? And so the, really the head of sales. Eventually, you become so strategic to an organization if you continue to sell. Viva kind of was famous for layering the cake, they called it, of selling more and more products into more divisions of the companies. Eventually, they became so strategic to these life science companies that it became a CEO level decision. And you can believe that they definitely developed those relationships over time. In fact, one of the things they did, I think just recently, 2021, they actually converted to a public benefit corporation, which is very rare. And I think they were trying to make a statement about they now have a significant share of the industry and um, customers are highly dependent on them. They want to trust Viva for the long haul. And so they really did that as a statement that they're not just serving those companies anymore. They're actually serving the industry overall. They're serving the ecosystem. That mentality, again, of we are here to serve first, to create value first, and then to extract the value because we know we are delivering that value, right? So it's, it's a mentality, I think, that, that pervades those successful companies. You touched on this in your answer, but I'd, I'd love you to expand on it a little bit. Something that founders that we work with all the time or so founders we work with encounter all the time is this question of price points and where that puts you in the buying patterns of an organization. There's price points where a single person can approve it, like a Dropbox or a box. There's price points where you need CFO, CEO approval, even if it's a functional sale. And then there's in the middle where it's maybe a bit easier, but still not so simple. What, what are your thoughts on, on, on those thresholds and how founders should navigate that? Should I be encouraging founders to try to swing for the fences and prove you can get a, a six or seven figure deal? Or is it better to have a lot of enterprises underpaying at five figures because that's traction we can always upsell later? How do you think about that for the early stages of a company trying to prove itself? It'd be really nice, Gil, if there was like a generic answer here that worked. But the truth is every startup I've ever backed is a snowflake. They're just unique, right? Because I don't know if you're a golfer, maybe not, but like you can play the same course every day for an entire year and hit the same shot off the tee. And it's different every day, right? The weather's different. The moisture's different. You know, who you're playing with is different. Like this literally, I think you really have to get back to who is it fundamentally that you're trying to serve? What's the core value you're trying to create? And then how do you align a business model and pricing model that reduces the friction to delivering that value, but also is able to capture the value that you create. That's the tension between those two things to do the two extremes. I mean, so Zoom was all about going into an existing large market, reducing the friction of trying a product, essentially a freemium product, right? And getting as many users as possible and then figuring out where the price point would convert to a essentially a business user that was actually getting significant value out of the product. And so they, they picked that 45 minute toggle, right? Because knowing that for a half an hour, most of that's casual, maybe even more consumer type use cases. But if you're going to meet with somebody for an hour, like we're doing today, I mean, it's probably a business use case and you're willing to pay for it. So it was that key insight of like, where does that toggle over to somebody that's actually capturing a lot of value that's important to them and then figure out how to price basically aligned with that. Viva's case or ServiceMax's case, it was very much a strategic sell right from the get-go. And it was, in many cases, they started out with a pilot to kind of like, again, reduce the risk from the buyer's perspective, but the pilot had basically trigger points at which if we deliver on X, we are gonna charge you Y. And the Y was a lot of money to very large organizations. And their philosophy was, we know we are delivering a lot of value. We're gonna prove to you we can do it. 
We're going to build trust, but we are going to capture value because you want us to be successful as a business. You want us to be investing in R&D and building these products over time and delivering more value to you. If you want us to be a strategic partner to you, then you should want us to be successful. And I think it's that kind of shared vision of, I'm going to make you successful, but you also want me to be successful so I can continue to serve you. That I think is a real powerful metaphor to think about in pricing. Well, thank you. I wanted to pivot a bit and ask you about SalesLoft. And we were chatting with SalesLoft earlier and you said on their path to, you know, this is a company that helps sales teams optimize and they're doing over $100 billion of ARR now, which is amazing. But you said on the path to that, they pivoted completely. And I'd love to like unpack that story, particularly from the perspective of, as you said very astutely, like every company is a snowflake. So it's really hard to learn from another company. But how did they realize there was a problem? What was the problem? How did they realize there was a problem? And then what did they do? And you know, the more detail you can provide on their process, I think the more helpful it becomes for founders listening to this. Yeah. So SalesLoft is a great story. It's an Atlanta-based company. And we met Kyle Porter and Rob Foreman, the founders, back in, I think, 2015. It's interesting because the you know, one of the one of the tricks of the trade in the venture business is to listen at board meetings. Companies are talking about other pieces of software that are helping them and the functional areas do a better job. And so we kept hearing about this company, SalesLoft, that was making their SDRs dramatically more productive. And so I was curious about that. We met Kyle. He was just an incredibly energetic, charismatic, ambitious leader. You could just tell there was a lot of those fundamental leadership characteristics you look for. And it was interesting. He had talked about, again, kind of in this mode of, I'd call it servant leadership, but what he wanted to accomplish was to build the first unicorn in Atlanta to really have a dramatically positive impact on employees and the Atlanta tech ecosystem and to actually really help sellers be more successful in life. And you just tell where he was coming from was a place of trying to create value for others. And so we, we were immediately kind of attracted to Kyle and the team. I was a little concerned about, frankly, it being in Atlanta and the ability to attract a quality team to, to build what we wanted to build, which was iconic companies. And frankly, its first product was called Prospector. It was taking off. I mean, it was amazing. I think it had grown from a few hundred thousand in ARR to like 5 million in its first year. And I was like, wow, this thing is on fire. Well, as it turned out, it was basically scraping LinkedIn and pulling a bunch of contacts in and making an SDR's job, you know, just saving them hours and hours of menial tasks. And so SDRs loved it and it, the price point was low enough they could sign up for it on their own. So it was just one of these products that hit a nerve, served a particular individual or role really well and was just taking off. And they had another product at the time called Cadence, which was a little bit more sophisticated workflow of what's the next best thing for an SDR to do. It wasn't just about scraping LinkedIn. It was really about when they get there in the morning and they're sitting at their desktop, what should I do next? That's going to be my most productive move. We believed in that product as well, but it was really Prospector that was the thing we were excited about. That was the cash cow. So we invested in the company and literally like I think a month after we invested and led the A, we got a nasty letter from LinkedIn saying, you know, that this was not appropriate, that they were breaking the terms of service and that they, you know, were going to come after us if we didn't fundamentally change the business. And so it's, it was one of those like moments of existential crisis as a company, right? We had just raised money. The company was growing. We were trying to push that success and invest in this next product, but that was the cash cow of the business. And I remember a discussion with Kyle Porter and Rob about this, and we just decided like, 
we needed to burn the boats behind us. We basically needed to shut down Prospector or really wind it down essentially, and then put all our eggs in this new product. And it was scary at the time. Before you continue, was there a debate about that or was it just obvious to everybody that was the right answer? Did someone no, say, no. hey, maybe we should keep doing this? Oh, no, there was a lot of debate about it. I mean, there was a debate about whether, frankly, this was really legitimate claim by LinkedIn that we were breaking terms of service or whether this was publicly available data that, you know, that everybody has access to. We were just there was speaking. a case to keep going. Yeah, so that was the case to keep going. And you also, you know, when you're a young company and you have these big companies coming after you, it feels a little bit like you're being bullied. And you don't like being, you know, I don't like bullies. So, you know, like I, I was kind of at the time thinking we should fight. We should fight these guys because I believed in what they were doing. We were creating value for end users. We weren't like breaking any terms of service. And I felt like we were really legitimately trying to add value and create value to the ecosystem. So, yeah, there was a healthy debate. And of course, there's that thought of, okay, we just funded the company based on ARR growing from a few hundred thousand to five million. And now we have to go out and raise money. We're not going to be able to get through to cash flow break even if we put all of our investment in this new product, which was back to a couple hundred thousand in ARR. So yeah, there was a healthy debate of if we do this, then how do we raise our next round? And um, we, along with some other insiders, stepped up to bridge, essentially bridge the company, which I think also helped with making that decision a little bit easier because we really did believe in the team. We believed in the Cadence product. And and frankly, we knew that this was a potential risk going into the deal, but we were willing to basically bet on this team to, to figure it out. So it was a harrowing 18 months, but then Cadence took off as well. And it wasn't quite as on fire as Prospector early on. I mean, it was a product that was a little bit more sophisticated and required a little bit more selling effort. But what I loved about it, and it gets back to the generic thesis that I do think is important is it took a role, the SDR, the sales development rep for folks who don't know what that is, but basically it took a role that had been a role that people didn't invest a lot in from a technology perspective. It was a junior kind of role. So people didn't care too much about it. And what Kyle saw was these aren't SDRs. These are future sales reps. These are future VPs of sales. These are future company founders. And I'm going to make them more successful in their job. We're going to grow with them. And with Cadence, we started by selling to SDRs all of a sudden, so, you know, started selling to sales reps and then VPs of sales. And now Sales Loft is really a fundamental platform for sales productivity. Um, and it was a kind of vision of, again, we're going to take an underserved market. We're going to bring something unique to the table, really deliver incredible value, and then build that trust. And then over time, sell more and become more strategic. And I, I think it's a perfect example of starting small and focused and building momentum and then just having the ambition to continue to grow and evolve and do better things, you know, for your customers. So it's a wonderful story. So Vista came in, I think early last year and paid 2.3 billion for the company, which is maybe the highest a multiple a PE firm had ever paid for a SaaS company, maybe ever at this point, if rates don't continue to go back to zero. But I really credit the team. They built a phenomenal business and, um, they also knew it was a toppy market and they wanted to lock in some of the gains that they had made, but they're continuing to run the company and grow it. And I have no doubt that'll be a public company at some point in the near future. Amazing. So we actually got a really good question from an audience member. So Ronan was asking, how do you view usage-based SaaS in the context of growth margins and multiples? Yeah, so that's a great question. I think it's a really powerful model that when we talked about going from enterprise software to more of a, a SaaS model, recurring revenue, user-based model. To me, 
you know, transaction-based models are like the next iteration of that, which is really, again, shifting um, risk from the buyer to the vendor, meaning if you're not using it, you're actually not paying for it. So one disadvantage of a SaaS model is you can end up buying a lot of licenses for people that end up not really using the product, right? But in a transactional model, by definition, they're using the product, they're getting value out of it. I think Twilio was one of the first companies to really, I think, utilize this as a philosophy and approach. I think it's really a, a fascinating approach and can be very, very successful if if done well. And I, I think, again, tends to align your interests with the buyer and also expands the market because people can start small and work their way up. I mean, Amazon Web Services is maybe the best example. Company really built on a transactional model. Perfect. So I want to go back to your portfolio companies. So Gusto, we know them. We're a customer. I'm paid through Gusto, so they're great. And I'm wondering about the insight you had to make that investment because they were founded in 2011. And I believe at that point, I mean, I was still in college, but I believe at that point, payroll was a solved problem. So what was the insight that when you met Gusto, you were like, this is something that we can do and that will be profitable, despite it seeming potentially you know, that this was, this problem was solved. There was no need for a company like this. It's a great example, Anne, of a company that is taking um, kind of an existing large market and applying new modern approaches and technologies to creating a, a fundamentally different experience. So there are a couple of things. First of all, Josh and Eddie and Tomer, the founders, they're extraordinary, you know, young, young folks at the time with very grand ambitions, super bright, super passionate, very much values-driven as well in terms of the company they wanted to build and the impact they wanted to have. We met them probably first maybe in 2014, uh, 20, 2013, 2014 timeframe. They had just literally had, I think, a couple hundred customers and customers were tiny. They were like one employee, two employees, three employees. And I think there was a, a lot of skepticism at the time that you could build a business around selling to really small businesses like that. Again, you're always looking for kind of what's the unique insight that makes this company different? And I think it was, they realized there's like millions of new companies started every year. And every one of them needs a payroll solution. So they wanted to be the best in the world at serving a company at inception, literally like from the very get-go. And with the presumption that many of them will go out of business, but many of them will actually continue to grow and evolve with Gusto. And so if you actually looked at it, if you could acquire those customers for a relatively low cost and grow with them, the unit economics of that were extraordinarily great. And um, that, again, I think was a key insight. It was a huge market served by mostly large companies with very expensive products. And what they want to do is just make it easy, cheap, and delightful. The other thing, I think you look for demographic shifts, not just technology shifts to take advantage of. And so they were applying modern software techniques, but more importantly, they were going after what I'd call a digital native business owner, like the millennial business owner, the person that understood technology, had grown up with PCs, had grown up with the internet, was comfortable kind of self-service in many of these cases. And nobody had really built a product for them. Payroll was mostly built for a CFO or the HR person. And they really targeted founders who were like, I want to just get this done. I want to trust the company to do it well. I wanted it to be almost like an ATM. You know, I want to be able to go up, type in whatever, you know, and just have it done well. I think Gusto really did a wonderful job of focusing in on that unique customer segment, delivering great value. And, and then it was like word of mouth. And I think word of mouth is maybe the most powerful marketing mechanism in the world if you can get it going. 
And that was the majority of the engine of growth of Gusto was that word of mouth and customer experience. Social media, by the way, helped that, of course, you know, because now both happy and upset customers can have an outsized impact. But they realized that was a new powerful engine, even more powerful today than it's ever been. It's about 10 years already with Gusto, still a private company, but have now, I think, over a million people that they're paying and uh, I think is, is well on its way to becoming a really iconic company. I've got a Zoom question and a Viva question. And the Zoom question is similar. There were a ton of video conferencing solutions when Zoom started. So I'd love to ask you why Zoom? But I feel like the Viva question is even more interesting. Viva kind of set this bar for capital efficiency, which is just psychotic. They raised $7 million of venture capital. I think that's the right number. And they went public for over $4 billion. Never, so me, never used seven million either. Exactly. So let me let me start with the Viva question. I think that's more interesting. And I guess the question is: I was lucky enough to be involved in companies that kind of never touched their rounds, but they never managed to achieve that level of extreme capital efficiency. And I guess my question is: If I'm a founder reading about Viva, am I supposed to feel bad about not being as capital efficient as Viva? Like, what can I take from that? for a normal company and what was special or unique about Viva and will there ever be another Viva? What makes it possible for them to do that? What should we be looking for as VCs or as founders when we're thinking about businesses to try to have that degree of capital efficiency because the implications are incredible for however you want to look at it. It's pretty incredible. Yeah. Zoom and Viva are actually interesting. Both companies were profitable almost from day one, which is fascinating. So yes, it's definitely possible to be as capital efficient as Azuru, it's not easy. And of the hundred companies that we've backed in the history of emergency, there's maybe like two or three, you know, so it's, it's pretty rare, but the lessons learned are relevant for every company, because if you can even shift a few degrees into capital efficiency, impact can be dramatic on founder ownership, on investor returns. And ultimately, I think on the DNA of the company, at the end of the day, which may be the most important thing. So there were a couple of real advantages that made Viva really unique early on. One was, as I mentioned, this leveraging the Salesforce platform, right? So just from a CapEx perspective, they could essentially piggyback off of the hundreds of millions of dollars of invested capital that had already gone into that infrastructure on Salesforce. Secondly, they were selling into very large businesses, pharma, who happened to have very large IT budgets. And selling into the revenue side of the business, meaning that helping make pharma reps more productive was a huge impact on the bottom line. And so they were, they were able to basically leverage both the infrastructure and also solve a problem that was a very high value problem for people with lots of money. <laughs> okay. And then the final piece I would say, and Peter Gasser really as a philosophy and approach, I think really felt strongly that he only spent money where it mattered. It was just a Zoom, frankly, was the same way, very scrappy kind of mentality and not afraid to ask for the value that he was creating for customers and willing to walk from deals to do that. And I think the combination of all of those things together made Viva a very unique circumstance. Yeah. But a lot of those fundamentals, I think, can apply to every company. Um, yeah. You know, Zoom, on the other hand, again, very fast growing. I think they were on the opposite end of the spectrum in terms of the go-to-market approach because it was a purely viral self-service premium model as opposed to Viva, which was more of a strategic account approach. But Zoom basically, I think at the time we invested, they maybe had a half a million users, maybe uh, three quarters of a million users. And that was growing about 
250,000 a quarter. So like meaningful growth, 30%. But the most important thing was they were actually converting to paid. <laughs> I think it was like four to 5% of those free users were converting to paid users with almost no sales, like literally no sales and no marketing. And so the real question was like, could you layer on this already beautiful engine of inbound and conversion, a sales and marketing or go-to-market engine that would accelerate the conversion, take it maybe from 4% to 10%, let's say, or to double the size of the company. And that's exactly what they did. They had this kind of beautiful core inbound engine and they were able to layer on kind of a traditional go-to-market engine on top of it, which is where as venture investors, that's where we try and add value, right? Is attracting the talent and putting in the technology and the processes and the training and all the things that make a go-to-market engine hum. So that combination was really powerful. Yammer actually was very similar that way too. Fascinating. I, I could ask you more about all of that, but we're getting close to time here. So I, I, I wanted to switch gears a bit. And there's been a lot of conversation, obviously, about the climate that we're in right now and what that means for ventures and what that means for founders. And we could have a lot of conversation about all of those things. But I think the thing that is top of mind for me, and I'd love your perspective on it, is there are, when I look at our portfolio, there's a bunch of the companies are totally fine. A bunch of the companies are probably in serious trouble. And then there's these companies that are in the middle and they could go either way. And for companies like that, what I find, and you listen to podcasts and you hear other VCs talk about this, super experienced VCs. I've heard a bunch of people say the same thing. What they're saying is the VCs come in and say, you guys should cut burn. And the founder says, no, and I'm experiencing this. And in some cases, the founders come to me and say, deal, we're cutting burn. And I'm like, awesome. I'd have to say anything, right? So sometimes I say, you guys should cut burn. And like, hey, good idea. And then a month later, they've cut burn dramatically. But there are these cases where an entire boardroom of people is telling the founder to cut burn. And the founders are like, no, I'm not going to do this. What is the disconnect? A, what is the disconnect? And B, how do you advise both founders and investors to navigate that, that disconnect? Because it seems to be a, a persistent disconnect. What's the source of that disconnect? Why is it so hard for founders to take that yeah. medicine? Yeah. And then how do you get through that conversation in a constructive way that leads to a good place? Yeah, so I, there's a couple of thoughts I have on that, Gil. The first is, I think it's super important to have a lot of empathy and compassion as an investor for what emotionally an entrepreneur is going through in this situation. And remember that we have a portfolio of companies but this is everything to them. And it's not just numbers we're talking about. These are people they've hired. These are people they've convinced to leave jobs, to maybe move places, risk their careers. And so it's not hard to imagine that it's much harder emotionally to get to the same conclusion that cutting more dramatically or cutting faster would be a better decision. The second thing I'd say is I think we have to be careful about the level of arrogance that sometimes comes into those conversations because the truth is we don't know the future. We don't know the future. There's a ton of uncertainty. And I think there is a lesson uh, in kind of like this called like being default alive or default survival, right? Where you want to maximize the chance because where there's survival, there's hope, right? I mean, if you run out of cash and you can't raise it, you're done. But there's also the extreme that you could take where we've had discussions with companies where it's, yeah, we could fire 50 of the team and we have plenty of cash in the bank, but we're not going to be growing. We're not going to be serving our customers anymore. We've essentially eviscerated the engine of value creation of this company for potentially years. So what is it we're playing for here? Survival? 
or winning big. And so I, I think as an investor, and it's super hard, there's a pendulum that swings from fear to greed. You know, the markets swing dramatically over time. And I remember during the internet bust, I was on the board of a public company that had a $6 billion market cap. And three months later, had a negative enterprise value, meaning negative 200 million. Think about that. Like it had more cash right. in the bank and had $200 million, but it was valued essentially at zero as an enterprise. So, you know, the markets can shift so dramatically. And yeah, we had to cut back in that company, but we also saw to it that we retained some of the key talent, that we retained our customers, that we retained the viability of the business. That company was ultimately sold for, I think, $6 billion to, to Microsoft and very short, like maybe three years later. Like it's very hard to predict the future. So I think it's very important not to come to the conversation with a I'm right, you're wrong kind of mentality with a founder. I think it's about understanding what the options are, playing out the scenarios, and, and frankly, doing the best you can to come to a decision and then signing up for that decision together. Like, you know, sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't work out, but I just feel like trying to build a, essentially a consensus at the board that this is the best decision we can make given everything we've got. And I will also say, like, I've, I've come to this realization as an investor, but I will always, frankly, err to support the entrepreneur and the founder at the end of the day in terms of their decision, because they're the ones that have taken the risk. They're the ones that are betting their reputation and career and track record. And yes, I lose money potentially in this deal. Absolutely. But frankly, it's, it's more important to me to make sure that I've supported this founder in a way that they see this company fulfilling its potential. And we could be wrong, but I want to give them their best shot. Now, I think people are much more sophisticated now. There's so much more information about their market information travels so much faster. It's very rare to see a founder that's completely like ignoring the signals out there in the marketplace. So I, I don't know. I, I guess I'm I'm maybe pushing back a little bit on the mentality that we know best as investors, because if we could predict the future by 100%, yeah, that'd be great, but we can't. I think that that's really good advice to me, frankly, and to VCs in general, I think there's something that happens when you're a VC, you, you start to think you know stuff that you clearly don't know about companies, even companies you're involved with, right? You're a supporting player. You're not the man in the arena. What is your advice for founders, the other half of that equation, where certainly you've been in situations where you felt as a VC that the founder needed to make tough calls. And as you rightly point out, the emotional cost for the founder to make those calls is much higher than it is for us with our portfolio and our distance from the individuals affected. What would your advice be to the founder on the other side of that? Like, I, I completely accept what you're saying about the VC side of that equation. What's your advice yeah. to founders who are facing those choices today, especially? Well, first of all, I, I think it's incumbent on them to listen and listen hard to all of the folks around the table and to really internalize what's going on. Many companies raised very large rounds in 2021 at very high valuations, and they don't have to go back to market anytime soon. So there's like this ability to be in denial about what's going on out there. So I think it's super important to listen to the folks around the table who are in market currently and hear them about how much the world has changed. And the world has fundamentally changed. So the trade-off between growth and profitability is fundamentally shifted. And I, th I think you got to be aware of that. The other thing is, I, you know, 
venture folks are like the canary in the coal mine a little bit. They're kind of the leading indicators of what's happening out there if you're not in market. And I, I think it's very dangerous for a founder to just presume, hey, it's just it's just about those other guys. It's not about me. Yeah. So I would say, listen, ask a lot of questions, internalize, really try and, and build consensus in terms of the decision-making process and then make a decision and don't look back. Don't look back. Hindsight is twenty twenty. We all make decisions in retrospect. Maybe we could have made a different decision. The key is to learn from it and get better and continue to grow. And I just have a tremendous amount of respect and empathy for that decision. And I know like there's some of the best companies in the world right now, the best in the world that are making 15, 20% cutbacks in their workforce. And it's gotta be excruciating for those companies. I will say at the end of the day though, great companies do survive. You know, like the companies are much stronger than you think much, much tougher, much more resilient. And even losing individuals, I think founders are always worried about what's the team going to think, you know, their options are going to be underwater. You know, people stick around if they see leaders that they believe in. Because the truth is we're all dealing with this environment. Every company's dealing with a changed environment. So there's a comfort that comes from founders that are willing to speak the truth to people. And as an employee, if I were going to join a company and stick with a company, even if it's a tough decision to be made, I'd rather have somebody that's going to be transparent and honest with me about what the future holds and just be vulnerable and say, we're, we made some mistakes. We're doing our best and we're committed to continuing to grow and make this a great opportunity. And we're going to treat the people that leave extremely well because they were part of our story and we want them to succeed, even if not in the context of our company. Life is long. You know, a lot of these relationships come back in many different ways. And I think people generally, if they think about that, that they're not playing a single game, they're playing kind of a lifetime of games with relationships over time. I think it's really a powerful way to, to just treat others as you like to be treated and hope, hope it comes back. Jason, thank you. I know we're a few minutes over, but I can't think of a better place to end than that message, both to VCs on the empathy side and on founders on the, well, what does empathy mean? Jason, thank you so much for doing this. I've been hoping to do this since I first told you about what I was building with Angular and I'm really glad we, we could make it happen. Thank you so much for all your help over the years and for doing this. Really appreciate yeah, it. Really enjoyed it, Gil. I've always found you and your team to be very authentic and passionate about the business and willing to learn and grow. And I think you make a great partner with entrepreneurs from what I've seen. So I, I hope there's more venture investors like you in the world and anything I can do to be helpful to you and your community, I, I look forward to it. Thank you so much, Jason. Really appreciate it. 